0: And welcome to Dick's Picks. I'm Carter, and with me is Mr. Dick.
1: Hello, hello, Mr. Dick.
0: Dick. <laughs> well, it's yes, out
1: Dick's Picks this month on Dick's
0: Picks, we are doing another Carter's pick, and we are going back to the well of the 1970s, the greatest era of American filmmaking. To take Carter's
1: it actually a 90 year old man. <laughs> That's what all the Carter's picks. If you haven't found out, he is going deep. In the well of uh, cinema.
0: well you know, film history is a long time. It's uh, 130 years old. We got a lot of, we got a lot to pick from. You're lucky I haven't gone silent on you yet. So, we still have a a lot of film history to delve into.
1: We wouldn't have much of a podcast if you did that.
0: (laughs) Just breaking down silent movies.
1: (laughs) No, if you went
0: silent. Oh, if I just totally, if I uh, it just
1: be it would we would turn into my movie bat brat, uh, brat (laughs) reaction show. Reaction show, yeah
0: But today We are taking a deep dive Into the last detail from 1973 What the hell did he do, kill the old man? (laughs) Robert. How much did he (laughs) lift? $40 Trying to lift the polio contribution (laughs) box Yeah Polio boxes the old man's Old lady's favorite do-gooder projects She took the groceries Where are we going, Chief? Fortress, naval prison Good. Good duty for you guys they're gonna get in there all right, but first they got to take care
1: of a few details along the way.
0: Okay, Bednicky, you're the hotshot.
1: We're going to a party. Yeah. Huh? This could be a big one, eh, Meadows. All we gotta do is get rid of that silly-looking creep there, and we got these three chicks all to
0: ourselves, doing a man's job. Talking ships. He looks
1: like a big penguin, don't he? <laughs> Watch out for children! He <laughs> sure is having a good time.
0: Yeah, sure is, and you said it wasn't in him. Yeah. Huh? All right.
1: <laughs> what do they do in this man's navy? Everything they can i to drink a toast to Batman, Superman,
0: and the Human Torch. Ah! <laughs> I'm sure this is a movie you had never heard of.
1: I had not, but I was with my parents and I said, hey, you guys want to watch this movie? And they said that they had seen it. So, you know, you are basically a 70-year-old man.
0: Yeah, I'm striking the chord with people who were alive in 1973.
1: That's I will also know. say when I said, "Do you want to watch it again?" They said, "No, nah, we'll pass." <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, for me, it's a it's a pretty rewatchable movie. Um, but like I do in most Carter's picks episode, I'm going to provide a little bit of uh, historical context and
1: for uh, the... just just to for context for them passing, they're still scarred for umbre- by your umbrellas of Cherbourg. Yeah, they're scarred <laughs> from that.
0: This is at least more accessible than that,
1: I think so. I it's think got recognizable
0: definitely. faces. It's got you know recognizable locations. Um, yeah, it's set in Virginia.
1: I'm yeah. Uh, at least that, for the beginning, those are my questions. <laughs> I have questions about the uh, the transit and like the real realness of it. Uh-huh. Uh, you know what path they actually took, uh, where the stops were, you know, yes. all that sort of thing.
0: Well, we can we can get into that in time, but first I'm yeah. gonna I'm gonna do my film history thing and and do the a little movie, do a little backstory on what this movie is a, a part of, which is the new Hollywood. What do you know about the new Hollywood, Mister Dick? I know
1: nothing. <laughs> Some would call is this it after is, is it after like Cary Grant and them and uh, them die Hitchcock's Dunzo. They're like, let's get some Scorsese and all those other and some other folks in there.
0: Well, that it is more true than you realize. Um, <laughs> some people call it the American New Wave or the Hollywood Renaissance. Spielberg, I prefer to I get call some it
1: context clues. New
0: Hollywood is what I prefer mm-hmm. to call it. Um, to establish what the new Hollywood is, I think first we need to lay the groundwork of what the old Hollywood was. Hopefully, oh, uh, <laughs> I'll cover this very briefly. So I would consider old Hollywood what this is responding to, to be the period between 1934 and 1968, when movie content was limited by the Hays Code. Have you heard of the Hays Code? No, what is that? It is also called the Production Code, and it set industry guidelines for what was allowed to be portrayed on screen in terms of sex violence, language, bad behavior generally. Stuff like if you show a criminal, the criminal needs to be arrested by the end of the movie or... You know, they if you can't show be
1: a... murdered. Can they yeah. be murdered?
0: <laughs> well, they could be if like the, the hero is the one who does them in.
1: So um, eliminating this code sort of paved the way for like Raging Bull and some real graphic stuff is what you're saying.
0: Basically, I'll, I'll get okay. into that. But, but also during this period, uh, as well as the Hayes Code being the sort of arbiter of film content for 34 years, um, American movie production was very much dominated by the five major studios. Metro-Goldwyn-Meyer, Warner Brothers, Paramount, 20th Century Fox, and RKO. Of those five, four are still operating. I'm sure you'd recognize most of them, except for RKO, uh, which was, Mm -hmm. I think, bought by Paramount in the 1960s. Um, Okay. (laughs) (laughs) During this period, actors and directors had contracts with the studios. Few filmmakers had total control over their projects because ultimately directors, actors, writers, cinematographers were all considered to be studio employees. And for the most part, the studios and uh, the the producers basically decided what kind of films were being made, what the film would be. They essentially had final cut on it to basically decide what the movies would look like. And
1: That's directors how it were be.
0: directors were hired hands. Like take, you know, take those decisions
1: out of the the artist's hands and put it in the money man's
0: hands. Yeah, and you know, it worked for a long time. They made a lot of money. the The Hollywood motion picture became you know the gold standard of world movie production um but a crisis hit hollywood in the 1950s do you know what that crisis was
1: a korean war
0: the rise of the television
1: Oh, well, that so too. the
0: television <laughs> brings the moving image into the home it's the first real competition movies have had um you know since they sort of overtook radio as the dominant uh mode of cultural production um and the tv sort of makes a crisis in hollywood and along with the sort of invention of the tv we get the invention of widescreen photography um which i think you watched uh to be or not to be and that was in the academy ratio where it was like a little box but because that was the same as tv they needed to do something different so they invented widescreen technology technicolor became more common and uh ah. the movies of the 50s and 60s became these big widescreen productions like uh ben hur uh Sound of music, I, stuff
1: interesting. Like that. So the ratio of movies prior to the television would have just fit in the television perfectly, is what you're saying.
0: Basically, yeah. You had to give them a reason to to get out of the house and and see something <laughs> that they wouldn't be able to see at home, something big and something colorful, and that lasted three and a half hours, basically. So you get these giant, bloated, you know, productions like Spartacus and Ben Hur and the Fall of the the Roman Empire and and stuff like that. Oliver was sort of the the last of this sort of era of filmmaking with just these giant 3-hour musicals. Um My Fair Lady is another example of it. Very expensive productions, but ultimately the they tops made a lot of
1: bottoms of your screen.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh and as this was going on in Hollywood, um as they're sort of responding to the television and making bigger and bigger movies that are in a lot of ways uh more standard and a little bit more boring even though they're more exciting with the the wide and the the Technicolor, they're pretty standard sort of Um, not very interesting movies. Um, But meanwhile, in Europe, some major directors were changing how movies could be made and how they were understood. Um, In France, there's Jean-Luc Godard.
1: Heard of him? Did he poop on a plane?
0: Uh, Maybe. I didn't know this story. Uh, Francois Truffaut.
1: Gerard Depardieu.
0: Oh, well, he comes a little later. He's actually in some Truffaut movies. Um, Mm -hmm. Agnes Varda, Claude Chabrol. Alain renee these are all french filmmakers um in italy michelangelo antonioni and federico fellini i think you've heard of him right fellini uh, he
1: w- wasn't he like the italian prime minister during world war ii
0: close <laughs> it's mussolini um huh. he did make some movies that were set in that period though um and in mussolini sweden he
1: was a director as well <laughs> no
0: no F- fellini was alive during the fascist <laughs> era in Italy, actually, right after the war, you get a response called Neorealism, which is like bicycle thieves and Germany Year Zero, Rome Open City, which were um, mostly made with non-professional actors, not very stylized. It's sort of supposed to show like the real world as it's occurring. Basically, is the idea. Um, and then Sweden, Ingmar Bergman, Russia, Andre Tarkovsky. So these guys are basically running laps around American directors in terms of really pushing the boundaries of of you know, the medium and making very exciting sort of new movies. Well, stuff's gone a little stale in the United States. Um, But as these directors are making movies, European movies are starting to become more available in the United States. They're starting to be shown in movie theaters. Uh, There's just a lot more access to sort of worldwide cinema from the 1960s onward. And uh, young filmmakers and artists become very influenced by these directors. Um, And in a sort of sea change, directors are starting to be considered to be the artists who are ultimately responsible for a film. I think uh, Stanley Kubrick is a big influence on that with stuff like 2001 A Space Odyssey and Dr. Strangelove. Um, it, bef- it was very rare for a director to sort of be like marketed as the name, which is something we're pretty used to now, like Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk, uh, James Cameron's Avatar, Quentin Tarantino's Glorious Bastards. That's not really how movies were marketed back in the day. It was more the the studio or the actor who was considered to be the sort of hook that got people yeah. interested in the movie. Uh this all changes in 1967, so the year before the Hays code officially is repealed. And it's sort of on the wane because people are starting to sort of push the boundaries of of what can be shown in a movie. Um some movies in the 50s show like addiction and stuff like that. Um Whoa. Lolita yes. is a pretty <laughs> it's a pretty boundary pushing movie about uh, uh you know, some borderline criminal sexual practices. Um but 1967 is the big year with the release of two movies. Can you guess what they are?
1: Uh, Godfather. That's 72. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think you know
0: one of them. I think you've probably seen one of
1: them. Warriors. The Graduate. Uh, Mike Graduate. Nichols. Have you seen that? Okay. Yeah.
0: And Arthur Penn's Bonnie and Clyde are basically the two that really change Hollywood forever. And these two are radical departures from your typical Hollywood movie because they show the main characters doing what most average Americans would consider to be morally despicable acts, whether that be committing crimes, having an affair with your dad's best friend's wife, stuff like that. And the mm-hmm. movies don't necessarily take a moral position where they condemn this behavior, which was basically what you had to do if you showed uh, you know, atypical or immoral behavior. You had to sort of code it as something that's bad
1: have um, to get their comeuppance
0: yeah and these two movies definitely don't do that I mean Bonnie and Clyde are killed at the end of the movie spoiler alert but um it's not really shown to be like they got what they deserve it's more like oh these people were really done wrong which you know siding with the criminals is not something that was really done in movies um,
1: weren't Bonnie and Clyde were they real
0: they were real but it's a very stylized very sexualized sort of depiction. so did
1: they like... were they not killed in real life no they weren't <laughs> this is a true movie yeah this movie based on it so i i don't that's not a that's not a spoiler a, no
0: okay um but generally their attitude towards sex and violence was fundamentally different from what came before it i think some people would credit uh, america's involvement in vietnam in the sort of actually mm-hmm. television having an influence on that because people were being shown you know, real violence in their homes uh, pretty much every day while Vietnam was going on. So people became a little more comfortable with seeing things more out of the ordinary on screen and things that, um, you know, weren't necessarily comfortable or or reinforced their values. They were more interested in seeing stuff that showed them, you know, a side of the world that they weren't necessarily familiar with. Um, And instead of audiences being turned off by what they're seeing on screen in The Graduate and and Bonnie and Clyde, they go nuts for it. The Graduate becomes the highest grossing movie of 1967. Bonnie and Clyde becomes the third highest grossing movie of the year. And unlike the big uh, musicals and Sword and Sandals movies, these aren't really expensive movies to make. Um, They're made a lot more uh, cinema verite sort of style, where fewer lights, uh, a lot more natural lighting, a lot more location shooting, so you don't have to shoot on sets and stuff like that. So it actually uh, is fiscally a lot more Uh, you get a lot more return on investment because you're spending When you
1: don't have to build the set.
0: Yeah, basically. yeah, (laughs) And control all the lighting and everything like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And based on the success of those two movies, uh, the dams sort of start to burst. We get Roman Polanski's Rosemary's Baby in 1968. And then 1969, we get Sam Peckinpah's The Wild Bunch, which is still probably one of the most violent movies ever made. And Dennis Hopper's Easy Rider, which is the sort of first movie to show pretty hard drug use and not really condemn it um, mm-hmm. which was a pretty big departure because before that you had show sort of drug use, but it's usually stories of addictions, like how bad these drugs are and, you know, how much they ruin your life. And, and then he's easy, easy rider, you know, they don't really make any moral judgments on, uh, you know, uh, transporting cocaine from California to New Orleans. It sort of seemed like a fun thing to do. Um, yeah. Which is pretty different. <laughs> For the next 10 years or so, Hollywood is dominated by directors who have far more control over their movies, and the studios are spending. Um, It starts off that these are sort of sound investments because they're not, they're risky in their content, but they're not very expensive. And, you know, like The Graduate and Bonnie and Clyde, there's potential to make real money. But um, as studios sort of get these creative directors and they start having hits, they sort of spend more and more money until it gets a little out of control in the late 70s. But we're going to, uh, put that to the side for the time being and uh, this really opens up the doors for directors like Francis Ford Coppola, George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, Martin Scorsese, Woody Allen, Bob Fosse, Brian De Palma, uh, many others so these people are starting to be respected in a way that even like Hitchcock was you know we think of a great director now but in his day he kind of got a lot of shit from the press because they thought his movies were unserious and Um, not really about anything. So despite their technical virtuosity, they weren't really seen as high art in the way that, strangely enough, like a Woody Allen movie would become seen as high art by the the late 70s. Hmm. Today's movie, we get to The Last Detail, uh, is directed by one of, I think, the best filmmakers of this era. And in many ways, I think he's more representative of the new Hollywood than any other director. That is Hal Ashby. Um, What else
1: has he done? Never (laughs) heard of
0: him. I'll get to it. Uh, Ashby came up in Hollywood in the 50s and early 60s as an assistant editor on some major productions like uh, The Diary of Anne Frank, um, and then became probably the best editor in Hollywood in the late 60s, winning the Oscar for Best Editing for In the Heat of the Night in 1967. And his rise coincides almost exactly with the emergence of New Hollywood as he makes his first movie, The Landlord, in 1970. In 1971, he makes Harold and Maude, which has become a cult classic and one of the most beloved American comedies of all time. But upon its release, it is not received well, critically or commercially. So 1973, he is at a a bit of a crossroads in his career. Um, And he is lucky enough to be considered to direct the movie by an independent producer who has sold a script to Columbia written by Robert Towne. He becomes a very influential figure in Hollywood. But this is also sort of Robert Towns' big break. Um, Now considered to be one of the greatest screenwriters of all time, but at the time, he had only really done TV work, uh, a lot of script doctoring and and consulting, all of that uncredited though. He actually wrote one of the more famous scenes of of The Godfather, um, but did not receive credit for it. Um, And he had written two screenplays that were made into feature films, but neither were very popular or successful. and Town wrote this screenplay in 1970 based on a book by Daryl Poniskin. Uh, and apparently it was initially met with a lot of negative reaction from Columbia Pictures because of its language, because it's you know serious vulgarity. Uh, but town insisted on keeping the vulgar language, which brings us to the star of this movie, Jack Nicholson. Um you know you've heard of Jack Nicholson. Uh I'm sure everybody has. Um In many ways, Jack Nicholson is the star of the new Hollywood. Um, Al Pacino and Robert De Niro are definitely competing for that mantle with him. Um, But in many ways, Jack Nicholson is the quintessential star of the 1970s. And although he had already been in many movies throughout the 60s, his major break came with a supporting role in Easy Rider, for which he was nominated for an Academy Award. Uh, In 1971, he gets his first nomination for Best Actor for Five Easy Pieces, which is a very new Hollywood kind of movie it's not really about anything it's hero it's kind of a bum who doesn't really do anything I think it's actually a pretty boring movie but audiences in 1971 really liked it and by 1973 he is big enough of a star to get the Robert Town screenplay into production Uh, Hmm. so there we are three of the sort of key figures of the new Hollywood Hal Ashby Robert Town, and Jack Nicholson all coming together uh for this movie in 1973 also starring otis young and randy quaid in his third movie um he had also been in the last picture show directed by peter bogdanovich which is sort of one of the first big successes of of the new hollywood very inexpensive movie and a lot of um jeff ridges first movie um so it actually introduces a lot of actors into the sort of hollywood world that's a movie that's also not really about anything uh it's just sort of <laughs> like Teenagers well,
1: in Texas. This one's about stuff, so that's good. It's this about one's some about stuff. Something it has but, it,
0: a... but in many ways, the sort of new Hollywood movies are defined by, uh, I think you mentioned before we started recording the sort of low stakes of the thing, that it's sort of yeah. just presenting, not something, you know, not like the big biblical epics or a big Hollywood musical or like an action movie. It's just sort of stuff happening, like sort of yeah. real life sort of stuff, which people were more interested in seeing than they had been. I people credit Vietnam a lot with the sort of change in attitude um mm-hmm. especially for movies in the 1970s. People were just more comfortable with seeing um you know vulgarity, sex and violence and stuff in a way that they just really weren't um before that. Um mm-hmm. this movie was released December 2nd 19 or sorry, December 12th 1973. One day after the signing of the uh the Prague treaty between West Germany and Czechoslovakia in which the two states recognized the 1938 Munich agreements to be null and void, acknowledging the inviolability of their common borders and abandoning all territorial claims. I think that's crazy that West Germany actually was still trying to get Czech Republic until the 70s. That's something that I didn't realize. Um, It's also three days before the American Psychiatric Association would remove homosexuality from its diagnostic and statistical manual of mental disorders which is pretty crazy
1: hey, yeah that's good
0: <laughs> no, but 50 years ago literally homosexuality is yeah. still considered to be a disorder that's just crazy uh makes you think how quickly stuff changes um a rotten tomato score of 89 percent a budget of 2.3 million dollars and a box office return of 10 million so actually a pretty big hit um nine yeah. three academy awards for best screenplay uh best actor and best supporting actor and it is now streaming on hbo max which is where we both watched it that was a who lot of me su- talking who
1: was who was the best supporting actor that was uh, or...
0: it was randy quaid okay yeah as uh 18 huh. year old seaman larry meadows but that was a lot of me talking uh I learned Can a lot. Can you sort of see this as being representative of, of the era and how I'm describing it?
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, it's more of like a relationship sort of drama. People sort of learning about these characters, less driven by some sort of external plot device. Yes. Um, just sort of meandering around with them. I thought of it as like a a an unfunny buddy road trip comedy. <laughs> Where the, where the no. buddies
0: don't really like each other, but they kind of yeah. like each other.
1: <laughs> yeah, they kind of like each other, but they don't like each other. And, you know, they have, and I think it, uh, what I thought was the biggest appeal for you was the sort of East Coast nature of it, where you could say, oh, wow, all right, that actually is Union Station, or yes. like, uh, <clears throat> hey, they're in Grand Central or whatever, um, you know, all that stuff. So I thought that, um,
0: Well, I love I love movies from the 70s because they just show especially ones like this that are more realistic and aren't really shot on sets because it it's almost Mm -hmm. like a time capsule because this movie is actually set December fifteenth, nineteen 1973, which is three days after it was released. So it's supposed to be a movie that's kind of taken place in real time almost Mm -hmm. uh, for the sort of week it premiered. It's supposed to be happening like now, um, Mm -hmm. which I think is very interesting because. It's looking back, you know, for a movie from 50 years ago, we sort of almost think of everything as almost a period piece now. Um, but this was a really contemporary movie when it came out. So I think it's just important like, to sort of remember context. Yeah. It's, you know, like it's something like Promising Young Woman was when it came on a couple years ago. Something that's set yeah. like now, something that's happening now.
1: Um, or what's that BJ Novak movie that just came out? The oh, vengeance. Revenge? Vengeance? Yeah. yeah I haven't like, seen it. You know, lots of cell phone stuff in there. Oh, is that?
0: Um, I've become really interested to see how people start using cell phones in movies. Um, yeah, I'm starting to notice it more. Um, but that was a lot of me talking. Did you like this movie?
1: Yeah, I thought it was good.
0: You thought it was good. Um, I mean, I so wouldn't for me, it's all about the Jack it on my own. Yeah,
1: I I wouldn't have chosen it without recommendation. Uh, but it it, it I think it was fine. I think it, like you said, Jack Nicholson is a uh there's a lot of a lot going on with that character and you can really <laughs> figure out figure him out yeah. um and then he's just sort of like bouncing off of the other guys oh. of uh what's his face mule and mule Mule meddles. and randy quaid yeah um but yeah yeah I think that you know it's he, I'm trying to figure out what these guys do. He just drinks in the in the barracks all day until (laughs) someone has to go to prison.
0: Well, they're they're um they're awaiting orders, so they're uh, sort of between shifts at the moment. And when a navy man isn't on a boat, there isn't
1: much for him to do. Um, And they're lifers as well. Yeah, you know, the the so let's let's get into the plot. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, the plot. Okay, so so December fifteenth, nineteen seventy three.
0: Yeah. Jack Navy Nicholson lifers, signalman, Mule. first class, Billy Badass Podusky, Jack Nicholson, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. gunner's mate, first class, Richard Mule, Mulhall, Otis Young.
1: They get hauled or... into the ASAC's office or something? Yeah.
0: <laughs> and are assigned a shore patrol detail escorting 18 year old seaman Larry Meadows to Portsmouth Naval Prison near Kinnery, Maine.
1: Um, For eight years.
0: Yeah. Meadows has been a dishonorable
1: discharged.
0: Yeah, dishonorably discharged and sentenced eight years in the brig for stealing $40 from a charity fund run by the wife of the senior
1: officer. You, you said he was court-martialed? He actually went to court? Yeah. Where the hell was Jag? Where yeah. was his public defender?
0: So that's sort of also something about the new Hollywood. It's sort of distrust of government and it's sort of depiction of, um, you know, the wheels of government sort of crushing the common man, mm-hmm. which is also sort of not something you would have seen pre-Vietnam. The, especially also, this is a... Uh, this is sort of immediately. This is as sort of the Watergate uh, investigation is going on. So there's just a real sort of distrust of the government in the air. And I know Robert Town. Part of this is um, part of the sort of reason why he wrote this was um, to sort of show how the military sort of takes the individuality out of people, and um, when you yeah. can sort of hide behind orders, sort of the moral qualms of it sort of go away. Well, so
1: Robert he, Town adapted it. You said from yes. a, a novel. Yes. Do you, do we know if the novelist was a navy man?
0: I don't know. It, I don't know too I, much about the novelist.
1: You know, I I assume so. It seems like <laughs> at, at least knows navy something guy. about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It seems like well, he was just like sitting around in his, on the ship waiting orders. He was like, <laughs> what about a move? What about a book? He just wrote it.
0: Uh Bedusky and Mohall are given 1 week to escape, escort Meadows to Portsmouth and if they fail to complete the task on time or let Meadows go free, they will be kicked out of the Navy and lose all benefits and pay.
1: Um, you know why they're given a week? Because they're also not given a car. What, <laughs> what, what the hell are they doing? Why not give these guys a car?
0: Maybe they, I mean, they're Navy guys. Maybe they don't have their license. They just they can't they're,
1: drive. They they're can boat only people. Boat. <laughs> they should have just taken a, a cruiser
0: boat. up the East Coast.
1: Yeah. All the Cape a... Cod. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, Despite their initial resentment of the detail, in realizing their prisoner is a kleptomaniac who steals compulsively, they see this after he steals some carrots from an old lady, um, candy bars, and some candy
1: and, bars. And he's just sna- He's snagging everything he can. While they get onto this greyhound bus, uh-huh. which I guess only takes them from Norfolk to up.
0: Richmond, I think is what yeah. it
1: is. Okay, where was? Do you think that was Main Station, Main Street Station, then? I
0: don't know. I don't know if it, I know that the Norfolk scenes were actually shot in Toronto because the Navy didn't let the production use any official American Navy sites. So they had to use the, the Canadian Navy. (laughs) Okay. But I I know everything post DC and on is, is the real sort of places. Um, I'm not sure about the Virginia parts, um, but I think they're supposed to be sort of taking the train out of Richmond.
1: Um, Go and look for a lunch. uh Uh-huh. go and look for a lunch that play the first place where they stopped the hoity toity
0: place very fancy
1: very full now is an irish bar where i would go every wednesday after kickball and play flip cup until 11 or 12 really yeah how
0: about that a mr dick crossover with the last detail that's unbelievable
1: thursdays were (laughs) tough in the office but it. yeah
0: um next or then they go to a diner and order burgers fries and milkshake um Meadows and then they, talks about how he wants his cheese melted, and he they first give it to him, and the cheese didn't melted, It and uh, Budowski's like send it back. It's easier to get well, what you want.
1: What they've what they've realized about Meadows is also that he didn't get. So it's it's a trumped up charge. He <laughs> yeah. had stolen. He had attempted to steal forty dollars from a charitable polio box that yeah. the. The base commander's wife is really proud of, (laughs) so they came. They brought the hammer down on him. Yeah, and what Jack Nicholson and Mule have realized that this kid has is a kleptomaniac and also uh, just kind of uh, a soft, soft a harmless idiot, (laughs) harmless (laughs) idiot. So they're what I think this journey is about is uh, giving him all these experiences that he. Has is lacking um, and won't
0: have and, in the next eight years and
1: won't have for the next eight years while also sort of trying to give him a little bit more backbone so that yeah. he's able to better survive. Um, well, well this this
0: really gets going in the next scene where they go to a bar. Um, yes, and the bartender denies some drinks because Meadows is underage, then has a cracker and about.
1: because he's a racist,
0: <laughs> yeah, he has to serve uh mule, yeah, but he won't serve this guy. And we get the monologue of the movie. I think I'll insert it, the whole clip, uh, into the episode. He's old
1: enough for a beer. Ain't that right, Mule? Yeah. Well, I'm not. You no know, one placed right here. Nice and
0: quiet. Eight years in a DD, at least we can buy the kid a beer. Do you know anybody wants to buy the beer? Hi, Ed. 30 cents' worth of beer in a glass in the same room as shipmates here. It don't work for you no more. Let me see your IDs. How come? Because this kid ain't old enough. Listen, pal. Listen yourself, pal. The law says I have to serve him and says I can't well, I'll tell serve you what him. you better do, Mr. Citizen Bartender. You take your beers and ram them up your ass sideways. You dig it? Whoa there, sunshine. so you can take your hand off that horse cock you got stashed under the bar. How do you know I don't have something with a little more bark to it? Ho, ho, ho. This redneck is talking about firearms. Well, I know that you ain't got nothing but wood under there, my man, because I happened to be in here one night when a certain sailor got it laid up the side of his fucking head. What do you think about that, redneck? It's loses. License for sure. If I serve it, I'm gonna kick your ass around the block for drill, man. You try it, and I'll call the shore patrol. I am the motherfucking shore patrol, motherfucker. I am the motherfucking shore patrol. Give this man a beer. I don't
1: want a beer. You're gonna have a fucking beer. Come on, man. Feel like one right now? Come on, man. Come on. Come on. Come on. Let's go. Come on, man.
0: is the scene of the movie where it's I know you're
1: holding a oh, horse fire. cock or something
0: <laughs> yes. make your hand off that horse cock how do you know yeah. I don't have something with a little more heat <laughs> this man's yeah. talking firearms mm-hmm. Um badass chews him out pulls a gun on him
1: creates the whole thing then they leave and just go start drinking in an alley and they, yeah and then they get into their their K hole they get a yeah. hotel and they just get like I don't know. Drink. How many, how many beers do you think they had? 40, I think 48? I think
0: I think Jack Nicholson has at least a case. I think he has yeah. at least 24. I think Mule's maybe like 15, 16, it and probably Meadows, you know, 10 or 12. It's a this lot is of beers. Where,
1: <laughs> this is where the like uh, main picture on the HBO Max page comes from. Them uh-huh. in the hotel with Jack Nicholson with his weird little mustache and his sailor hat shirtless. <laughs> And he does. He starts teaching his signaling thing yeah. to, to Randy Quaid in his underwear. Yeah, and I'm just, I'm just like, why are we lingering on in his underwear? You that's know? just that's just the movie. It's, <laughs> it's just the movie. Just it breathe. That's, that's like the base for the signaling because it's a lot of uh, gestures, but it all comes back to the both hands down by the waist. Yeah, it was. Uh, uh, I don't know, but uh, also he
0: tries a... to get Meadows to punch him. Yep. When he doesn't punch him, he goes crazy and breaks a bunch of stuff. It takes a lot of dedication to be a chaplain in the Navy. Don't take dimly shit, man. Come on. Come on.
1: Come on! Take a fucking poke at me. Take a poke at me. Come on. Come on. Hey, I'm gonna punch you out. Punch me out, you little prick. Why? Go ahead. Punch hey, me out. Hey, hey, man, he ain't gonna punch hey, you in no the oh, I'm yes, gonna make him. I like him. you. Yeah, I like you. Hey, I'm taking you to jail, motherfucker. That hey, ain't your fault. God! <sighs> come on, mule.
0: Come on, grunt. Grunt, 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 don't you? Don't you? All right, let's get them to the fucking grunts! I'm to the fucking fight the grunts! Hey. Badass. Would you teach me hand signals? I don't give a shit. And then they yeah. just start drinking again. <laughs> The scene goes like on and on. I think it's, I think it's really amazing stuff. It goes on for way longer than you think it should. And then eventually you're just like, okay, we're just watching them drink beer.
1: (laughs) You could really destroy hotels before you had credit cards.
0: Oh yeah. And then the, the cots they pull out at the end. I'm just like, this is amazing stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. Jack Nicholson like sleeps, like basically like on a triangle. Um, yeah. Teaches him semaphore, tries to get to stick up for himself, tries to get him to punch him. Uh, the next morning, they take a detour to Camden, New Jersey, seeking Meadow's mother, uh, only to find her away for the day. Uh, the house of pigsty cluttered with empty liquor bottles. Um, yeah. They get a little worried that he ran away for a second, but he just went to to ask the neighbor. Talk to the lady. neighbor. Yeah, yeah. Um, when they arrive at Grand Central Terminal in New York City, uh, Budowski instigates a fight with a group of Marines in a restroom. Uh, Mulhall and Meadows which join everyone in. joins to help
1: him. <laughs> You know, one but, of the
0: guys looked like he, like, you know, took a shot like on the sink. I was like, that guy might have broken his damn jaw. What um, did they
1: say? They said something like, uh, um, uh, you got those 12 buttons to get your dick out. Uh, yeah. The Marine <laughs> said that to Jack Nicholson, and he said, Well, if you wanted to get your dick out, you just take your hat off for the Marines, <laughs> which I thought, you know, it took me a second. I, yeah. I said, Clever. I it's, it's a thinking man. It's kind of, kind of, it's. Yeah. Whatever. Um, then they run off. And they, they run out. New York stuff.
0: Yeah. They, they go to the ice skating Rockefeller on, Center.
1: They get the best sausages that you can have.
0: Yeah. For 50 cents. Good um, deal. <laughs> uh, gambles with their per diem money playing darts with a group of bar patrons. Uh, the guy he actually wins some money off of is actually a cameo from Hal Ashby. Uh, huh. The guy with the big beard and long hair, he was a bit of a druggie, that's why the studios didn't trust him.
1: Um, <laughs> then they come across a chanting, yes, was Nicaran like, Buddhist, yeah. Was, that this is something like you also thad. get and
0: yeah, you get also get this in uh Manhattan, I think the Woody Allen movie with the Krishnas. So sort uh-huh. of Buddhism and Krishna Hinduism become
1: really Western popular, Buddhism where you get yeah. together and you chant and you yeah. sing and yes. it really has an impact on Randy Quaid. Cause yes. he's like, okay, I'm going to take your literature and maybe it'll get me through, you know, my eight years. And they go to a, a house party, and they say they go, well, because they go to a bar and he's just chanting there. Randy Quaid's just chanting <laughs> and they're like, you, be, you better be chanting for some pussy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, a woman shows up and says, "Oh, you're a part of the whatever, whatever. <laughs> the Nicker and Buddhist community. You, why don't you come to a party?" They all go to a party, and uh, it's, it's only like seven of, people. It's kind of forty year old Jack Nicholson with a bunch of twenty five year old <laughs> hippies, and uh, they're all kind of. I think the like the the best conversation there was between Mule and the lady. About yeah, the about Nixon. Re- Nixon. well, no, well the guy keeps the, asking about afro Nixon. Uh-huh. but the the lady was interested why aren't in there more black officers yeah right his his uh plight as a as a black man in the navy and yeah. how he feels about vietnam and i thought that was like very sweet of her um <laughs> and, but she was then, much more into
0: it than the girl talking to jack nicholson
1: yeah jack nicholson thought he was spitting some game <laughs> But He's he just was, like talking you know, insane nonsense. It's just like, oh, the ocean. When you're out there on the ocean, I feel at home. Blah 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 blah. Um, uh, the the woman say Meadows second. The... the woman who initially brings them there uh, goes upstairs with the woman with Meadows. Yeah. And Jack Nicholson's like, oh, you're gonna uh, yodel in the canyons, <laughs> which I guess is a euphemism for uh, eating eating. You know, going downstairs <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> but instead they go and she just transforms chance for, for him to escape yeah, uh, and just run away. Offers
0: but, him uh, to go to Canada so she knows somebody. He
1: refuses to run away because Mule and Nicholson are his best They're his friends. Best friends. <laughs> this poor it's like kid. the saddest line of the movie. This poor kid. Well, they, yeah,
0: we're going to take yeah. this moment to take a very short break uh, and be back to discussing the last detail in just a minute. are we we are back with Nick's fix <laughs> the last detail uh on the train to boston the next morning badusky and Mohall decide to take the virginal meadows to a whorehouse um uh, and this i thought was the most interesting sort of time castle element of the movie was we got to see the combat zone in boston which was the old red light district which is now gone that little area in the in boston that they go to with all the the peep shows and the strip clubs and everything
1: Um, taxi drivers waiting for the
0: (laughs) boston used to be a much senior place than it is now i mean new york city did too i mean at this time times square was basically like a hellhole of drug addicts and prostitutes um Mm -hmm. which is just what makes the 70s so interesting um they flag down a cab driver who takes them to a seedy brothel the uh, the cla- the cab driver is actually played by this uh cinematographer um in another cameo um they go to what and looks like from, a pretty um, a pretty seedy whorehouse to be honest um it looks like it's,
1: it's in like the attic of a seamstress like
0: <laughs> bad wallpaper yeah. too. Um, yeah and uh the the process of selecting the prostitutes very very gross business Um, but Meadows selects a a young prostitute, played by Carol Kane actually, who ends up being in the
1: Oh, he had just seen prostituting as they walked in.
0: (laughs) Yes. Um Bonaski and Mohal wait in the hall. But unfortunately, uh the first attempt that they pay for does not last very long. Doesn't Um,
1: matter if it lasts last 10 minutes or ten hours. You get what you pay for, honey. uh,
0: (laughs) That's very unfortunate for him. The policy is, you know, not made for people like Meadows. Um but Mohol and Baduski being the nice guys they are pay for medos to have a second chance. Um they make conversation in the room with the bad wallpaper while they wait for him. Uh Budusky reminisces about his former marriage. Uh he's now divorced in his life prior to the Navy. Uh Mule talks about how he doesn't know what he would do without the navy. He's a lifer and that's sort of why they need to take him in because the navy's basically all they've got now. There's there's no he's sort of real option. He's never yeah.
1: been married because he su- still supports his mother, and he yes. doesn't.
0: Yeah, it's a nice moment. I think it's well, <laughs> very well acted, Vivian. I think that's one of the highlights. Of I the think
1: acting, the it. use of lifer is, you know, it sort of brings the idea of prison. Sure, I think. Yeah, that's right. That's what I got as well. Is that yeah. even though they're not going to Portsmouth, they're still prison in prison to the name. They're in their own in
0: sort way. of prison of their own creation, right. Um, right. and have just as much limited freedom as, as Meadows does almost. Um, right. That goes with the sort of distrust of the government and the military that's going on at the time. Um, mm-hmm. It's just feeding into the new Hollywood. Um, mm-hmm. The next morning, Meadows tells the other sailors that despite a profession, he thinks that the young prostitute really likes him.
1: Um, yep. And he Jack <laughs> Nicholson says, you know, she's a person with feelings, so I bet she did.
0: <laughs> uh, just before they leave, uh, ultimately for Portsmouth, Meadows makes a final request for a picnic. Um, and in the snow and the freezing cold in what looked like the Boston Common, they one of those little communal grills uh to make hot dogs. But Bunuski forgot the buns. So they're just dipping hot dogs into mustard. Uh despite Mohol saying you can't eat a hot dog without a bun.
1: Keto beforehand before keto. <laughs> yeah, I know
0: they're trendsetters. Um during the Frigid barbecue. Podoski provides in Mulhall his concern for Meadows and the abuse that he will face at the hands of the Marines at the brig. Uh, Meadows suddenly bolts in a last-ditch effort to run away, but slips on the ice and falls. Podoski loses his shoe and then beats the shit out of him.
1: Was uh, that scripted <laughs> or that just happened?
0: The losing the shoe? The
1: shoe? I think yeah. that what do you I think, think, think? that just
0: happened. It, it just am pro. Jack Nicholson's just a pro. And he's it like... Just badass would lose his shoe and just keep running we only
1: have a certain amount of film we can't we can't <laughs> cut you gotta keep yeah. um
0: great. he beats him up mohol restrains him because he's really beating the crap out of him um but and Mohall take meadows into the prison where he's marched off to be processed they don't speak there's no final words of parting um although but mm-hmm. had worried about the brutality awaiting meadows at the hands of the marine guards the young duty officer a first lieutenant wearing an Annapolis ring, berates Spadowski and Mulhall for striking Meadows. Uh, he asks if Meadows tried to resist or fight, which they deny. They cover for him because he did attempt to escape. Um, the Marine also notices that their orders were never officially signed by the Master at Arms in Norfolk, meaning effectively they had not left. Uh, this is a real sort of just arbitrary bureaucracy of the government yeah. sort of moment. Um and someone really taking a moment to sort of lord it over the people that he has power. Um, but the yes. young Marine officer relents when Mulhall and Beduski asked to speak to the XO.
1: Yeah. Cause who gives a crap? I mean, are they going to give the prisoner back too? like
0: an asshole uh, on the way out? Bedosky admonishes the officer for get, for for uh, forgetting to keep a copy of the paperwork. So it sort of shows his incompetence, despite him trying to sort of come off as the authority figure. Uh, With the detail complete, the pair stride away from the prison, complaining about the duty officer's incompetence. Both hope their orders
1: (laughs) will come through
0: uh, when they get back to Norfolk. They talk about where they're going to go. It basically just ends with them sort of walking away.
1: They walk off, Mule goes to Baltimore, and uh, Jack Nicholson goes back to New York because they got a few more days before they got to report back. Yeah. So it's kind of, I mean, they start, start with a mission, they complete the mission. There's, uh, at any point, uh, do you think it's supposed to uh, imply that they're going to let him go? They're like, because when you read the description of the movie, it's like, oh, they become friendly with yeah. him.
0: Yeah. It's so, sort of the tension of it. Um, yeah. And ultimately, it sort, of, it sort of just shows the lack of sort of control or real decision making yeah. that they have. But ultimately, they're just sort of tools of the government. Um, right. You know, to put this guy in prison for something that someone really shouldn't go to prison for eight years for um mm-hmm. i don't know if this is something that actually would happen or could have <laughs> i guess it
1: could um yeah but yeah, it, it definitely yeah but <laughs> it was yeah like i said kind of low stakes kind of like i think it's know, very funny though i mean in
0: some ways it's it's a pretty sad movie and it's pretty I slow. Think sad I but think i think sad. there's some real funny parts of it um i, I think there's some real comedy I think uh I think Randy Quaid's brilliant. As crazy as he is now, I think he's amazing in this movie. Um and yeah. despite like how much bigger he is than Jack Nicholson, just how he can make himself seem so much sort of smaller and weaker. Um, mm-hmm. I think is some real good physical sort of acting. And mm-hmm. you get a real sense of just how small Jack Nicholson is in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> Where, like he's, he's next to Randy Quaid you're like, wow, he's like five nine. He's like a small guy. Yeah. Um but he just acts so big. I think it's. I think it's a brilliant performance. I think he. I think he said that this is uh, the best acting he's ever done. Um, looking oh. back on it, um,
1: I do think my favorite. Like I said, my favorite parts were how many trees it seemed like there were were along I ninety five. Only two uh-huh. lanes on that interstate. Like <laughs> when they're on the bus. Yep, on the bus. And then the trains, trains uh-huh. look the same uh, yeah. on the outside, on the inside, a little different. But like uh, you could, I guess you could smoke then, whatever. Jack Nicholson's
0: just ripping like cigars.
1: All everywhere. Day. How many cigars does he have? Is that the same <laughs> <a> cigar?
0: <laughs> There's one where he like passes out drunk and wakes up with a cigar.
1: <laughs> That's the very beginning when we're introduced to him. Yeah. yeah.
0: There's just, I don't know. Watching older movies, it's like do people just like smoke and drink all the time?
1: Uh I get. I mean,
0: <laughs> it seems like a...
1: they're like, "Let's get some beers midday. Let's do it." I don't. Well, that's I don't what
0: know. in the scene where they're like drinking all night, they're also like ripping cigarettes. Like,
1: so <laughs> I, it's crazy. I I I had this on. Andrea said she was going to watch it, and then she had like 15 minutes in. She had enough of Jack Nicholson. And I, she said, she does not like Jack Nicholson. Jack Nicholson, yeah. And she said, it's he seems like he tries to be too hard to be a man. This is her preconceived uh, impression of him. But I feel like I think that's a correct
0: reading of the role.
1: In this role, it's extremely accurate. Yeah, that's Um, sort of the character. Right. He. He's. He's He's like called badass we're drinking we're fucking i'm a badass you know (laughs) we're fighting um so i think she she had a she saw where it was going and said this isn't for me well that's also (laughs) sort of
0: part of the new hollywood is i mean i think now especially when people watch movies they sort of want to see themselves in the main character and they want a, a main character that they can sort of identify with and 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 go through the either redemptive arc or
1: they want like a a blank slate sort of like an avatar is what you're yeah.
0: saying well not necessarily even that just like
1: like a like a blue creature that has nothing to do with anything
0: <laughs> yeah <laughs> well ultimately this comes back to sort of like film theory and and, and viewership of movies is that ultimately mm-hmm. when someone watches a movie the first person they're really introduced to that has you know iteration and a real personality we tend to sort of latch onto them and hope that good mm-hmm. stuff happens to them i mean and some people play with that like in the town where that's been and like he's a criminal and despite him doing criminal activity we sort of want him to get away um mm-hmm. and that's something i think just as viewers we're sort of trained to to sort of see the main character as like like you said sort of an avatar for the viewer like someone who in the two hours of this movie, we're going to sort of live this either redemptive arc or get to the end and, you know, they'll be in a better position than they are at the beginning. But movies in the 1970s just were not interested in doing that. They just sort of (laughs) wanted to show you kind of hopeless people at the beginning. And at the end, they might even be more hopeless than they were at the start. Taxi Driver is is the perfect example of this, where the main character is just someone who um, people can sort of see parts of themselves in, but it's never supposed to be someone you're rooting for. But well, it sort of they plays got rid with... of the,
1: they got rid of the haze code, so they don't have to show any comeuppance for anything. <laughs> no, they <that> don't <laughs> maintain their terrible uh lifestyles. Yeah, and no, I mean no, the people
0: Jack Nicholson and Mule and uh Fedusky and Mule and this aren't like bad people. Uh, but no. they don't they don't take the opportunity to like do good things. So I guess you could say that, you know, showing him a good time is about as good as they can do in the scenario, but ultimately it's the sort of uh, you know, government bureaucracy that's sort of limits the sort of individuality and and gives you a, a sort of cap on how good of a person you can really be so this movie isn't really about like redemption or um mm-hmm. you know them finding themselves or anything like that so in that way it is sort of a sad hopeless movie um, yeah <laughs> <laughs> but but that's sort of what the air is about is you know it's vietnam it's watergate stuff good stuff doesn't really happen to people in the 1970s so this movie is very get some more movies like
1: this soon <laughs> <laughs>
0: Maybe. <laughs> I don't maybe. I mean I, I think maybe Tar is sort of like that this year. I can't think of too many others that are just quite so down. Um mm-hmm. Banshee's Venus is a pretty dark movie. Um mm-hmm. but we could we can move on now to the the best of Wikipedia. This movie actually has an extremely rich online presence, uh, which I found surprising. Uh Can I
1: do can I before we do that, can I or, or are we gonna do quotes after?
0: We'll do quotes after.
1: All right. I only right. have two or three.
0: So John Travolta was up for the role of Meadows. I think that's insane.
1: That would have been bad.
0: <laughs> I don't think he would have been good. Um, How mm-hmm. Ashby was busted for possession of marijuana while scouting locations in Canada. Uh, this almost changed the studio's mind about backing the project, but the director's drug bust was not widely reported and Nicholson remained fiercely loyal to him, which was a deciding factor. So New Hollywood, you got directors getting arrested and still making movies. (laughs) This was not happening in the 50s. Um, Haskell Wexler, who I consider to be the greatest cinematographer of all time, uh, was supposed to shoot The Last Detail, but he could not get a union card for an East Coast production. Um, That's also sort of part of the new Hollywood is uh, the filmmaking sort of apparatus moving to the East Coast more than it had uh, previously, which even if a movie was like set in New York, they would have shot it on um studios in in los angeles which mm-hmm. is insane to do because it costs a lot more but you know the that's union just how was they did just it.
1: not just wasn't national it wasn't national it was no. like east yeah. coast west coast sort of thing yeah,
0: yeah. it was film production is so based on the west coast it's almost something that's hard to conceive of now because you know we live in an era where anybody can, can make a movie
1: anywhere you yeah go anywhere for it too
0: yeah and, you know, film isn't necessarily just centered in L.A., but it really, really was before New Hollywood. Um, and that's why New York becomes a bi- big thing in the 70s. That was the first time people really started to shoot on location in New York. You get that with the Scorsese movies with uh, Woody Allen. Um, so how, <laughs> Ashby asked Gordon Welles, who shot The Godfather, to do it, and he was unavailable. Um, so Ashby promoted Michael Chapman, who was a camera operator to director of ph- photography. Um Michael Chapman went to shoot Taxi Driver and many other Scorsese movies became one of the best cinematographers in Hollywood. Um, They worked together to create a specific look for the film that involved using natural light to create a realistic documentary style. Ashby let Nicholson look through the camera's viewfinder as the shot was being set up so he knew the parameters of a given scene and how much freedom he had within the frame. Nicholson said, Hal is the first director to let me go, to let me find my own level. Um, (laughs) Columbia was still not happy with the film uh, when it was turned in by Hal Ashby and asked for 26 lines to be cut that had the word fuck in them. The theatrical release of The Last Detail was delayed for six months while Columbia fought over the profanity issue. The film contained 65 uses of fuck overall, and at the time of its release broke the record for the most uses of the word in a motion picture. Um, wow. Do you know what has the record now?
1: Wolf of Wall Street?
0: Yeah i think yeah. it's about 500 yeah
1: uh, <laughs> um columbia, the way directors yeah Hollywood right. directors
0: ashby persuaded columbia to let him preview the film to see how the public would react it was shown in san francisco and was a big hit with the uh public the screening audience and um they were allowed to keep it how it was um imdb trivia prevents to counter almost sort of point of view to that uh, it says the script was completed in 1970 but contained too much profanity to be shot as written Columbia Pictures waited for two years trying to get writer Robert Town to tone down the language instead by 1972 the standards for foul language relaxed so much that the profanity was left in I don't know if that's true
1: I don't huh, know so if there would have right, been like yeah. a
0: policy to let the F word be said more in 1972 than in 1970 I don't think that's true
1: so they're saying the F word was a problem throughout, and uh, Wikipedia is saying it was only after it was shot that it really came to tr- Columbia. Yeah, Columbia. but uh,
0: so, so we'll let we'll let uh, we'll let the audience decide who to believe on this one. Um, Jack Nicholson turned down the role of Johnny Hooker in The Sting, uh, which went to Robert Redford. Uh, he thought The Sting was too commercial. Um, Nicholson and Redford were both nominated for Best Actor at the Academy Awards, but both lost to Jack Lemon and Save the Tiger, which is a movie nobody has seen in 50 years. Um, (laughs) When the film failed at the box office, the studio re-released it, marketing as a hilarious comedy with the tagline, What's the Last Detail? 300 beers in a barrel of laughs. Jesus.
1: Um, (laughs) That is is just... Can we sue them for that? That's such misrepresentation. That's
0: real false. There are 300 beers, though. So. They to be like, "Hey, we didn't wow. lie totally." Uh, Columbia wanted the cast to be Burt Reynolds as Bradusky, Jim Brown
1: the, as Morhall. I need to see the trailer that they cut for this hilarious Rob. <laughs> like that was <would laughs> the be, last like, detail.
0: The last laugh. We're like it.
1: Two guys. It's like <laughs> trailers that they, the comedy trailers that they made, make out of horror films or uh-huh. like the rom coms out of horror films. That it's just, oh gosh.
0: Uh. So yeah, they wanted Burt Reynolds, Jim Brown, and David Cassidy as Bedusky, Wolh, and Meadows. Uh that obviously would have been without how I be directing. Um we'll finish it out with best quote. You said you okay. have three nominees.
1: They're short ones. Uh badass. He says, uh one time in Long Beach, a friend <laughs> was looking for me. And I was hiding on top of his car and I pissed on his head. <laughs> this, That's a
0: barrel of less. Yeah. laughs.
1: Yeah. And then like, uh, the where's the other one? Uh, Jack Nicholson again. I knew a whore in Wilmington. She had a glass eye. Used to take it out and wink people off for a buck. <laughs> Hilarious. So funny. And then after they have been drinking in the car garage, uh Jack Nicholson goes, Let's get you a Heineken. Uh and Randy Queen. What's that? What's Heineken? And uh Jack Nicholson says, It's the finest beer in the world. President Kennedy used to drink it. I What's thought this was
0: with- I thought this was a great time capsule for like beer production. Um because well, the three beers we see in this movie. Besides well Heineken, what do you, what are the other two? Was Miller Lite, Miller Highlight? This is before Miller Lite was invented. Was it uh, Pabst Blue Ribbon? Pabst Blue Ribbon and Schlitz, yeah, which
1: reminded me of <laughs> I, when this Heineken thing reminded me of Pabst fucking Blue or what? Heineken, fuck that shit. Pabst <laughs> Blue Ribbon. Yeah, exactly. That's what I thought about. <laughs> Heineken, yeah. <laughs> It's like Heineken was like the
0: only import beer for like fifty they just years. Love
1: shouting out their beers in the back in the day.
0: For me, there's there's only one quote. It's really fuck that shit.
1: White Claw.
0: <laughs> uh, that the, the incident with the bartender. I'm gonna. I think I I, I included the clip earlier, but the bartender. You tried now, car to the shore patrol. I'm the motherfucking shore patrol, motherfucker. I am the motherfucking shore patrol. Yeah. <laughs> iconic uh so the last detail probably i don't know how many 30 and younger people have ever seen this maybe me and four other people but now was, me <laughs> i think i think i would recommend this to most anybody who's interested in movies to be honest um it's obviously I not the best your, new hollywood with movie. Your
1: context like, it it makes it a lot a lot more i uh, think so it, you know you provide a lot more context to the movie that makes it a, a more enjoyable after the fact yeah and uh you know the experience while watching it without the carter uh context well
0: that's good to hear but yeah because i i think that i mean this is my favorite era of movies the new hollywood i think it's the most interesting i think it uh i love movies as cultural products and i think more than anything 70s movies are just time capsules that that really just show you what this sort of culture was like in the era and uh, you know this is like we did for a uh, marathon man i think is a great yeah. example of the 1970s it sort of shows the sort of conspiracy element the mistrust of government and stuff like that and mm-hmm. and this is this is just sort of one of those movies i think it's a i think it's a great period for filmmaking um and i think we may return to the 1970s for for my next carter's pick if, imagine that <laughs> if, if the parallax view is streaming we'll definitely do parallax view
1: um, we'll we we'll figure out a dicks a few dicks picks in between then yeah we'll
0: give you a nice to, break with our, our cream of the late 90s cleanse the
1: palate with something uh you know carter goes 70s i go aughts <laughs>
0: yeah you go 2001 mm-hmm. um but anyway i hope i hope this has been an enjoyable carter's pick i hope people will seek out the last detail and watch it because i think it's a i wouldn't say it's necessarily an important movie but i think that it is representative of its era and if you're sort of interested in american history if you're interested in film history i think it's an important movie in that context um and i think it has one of the great acting performances uh in american film history with jack nicholson um who was just on fire in the 1970s this is part of a streak where he's nominated for best actor four years in a row which i is saw that crazy.
1: chinatown was the next year
0: yeah and then cuckoo's nest which is uh, ultimately what he wins for although he could honestly won For you know, five easy pieces, Last Detail, Chinatown, or Cuckoo's Nest, and then he does The Shining a few years later. Yep, one of the great actors of all time. (laughs) But anyway, we we will be back next month with the before we go, Carter.
1: I do have a movie brat reaction. Okay. Um, I listened to the movie brats when you talked about Avatar: The Way of the Water. Yes, I've already told you this, but now the fifth
0: highest-grossing movie of all time
1: don't often agree with Jonathan's takes.
0: Uh-huh. I feel he
1: he leans into the grotesque thing, the body horrors a little bit more than I like. <laughs> but I do agree with his take on Avatar Way of the Water. It was not good, although our reasoning is different. Yeah. I think the story was dumb and the dialogue was dumb, but he just has a severe aversion to the uncanny valley and CGI. So although we have different paths we converge you arrive um, at the same point yes on like this, water on this, this like a body over. of
0: water which oh, doesn't end or begin Oh it's no. there before we die in a, in, <laughs> in after.
1: i am hey. kind of interested in fire people i guess but whatever. hey
0: numbers do not lie and it is now I mean, made more than avengers affinity war and it's about to pass titanic so
1: this is why yes i'm an accountant numbers don't lie numbers do not but, lie We'll see. We'll, we'll this was fun. will Any any reaction
0: up. to the Academy Award nominations?
1: No. No.
0: No. Have you seen, how many no. of the best picture nominees have you seen?
1: How many are there? There are nine. Well, let me pull them up just a sec.
0: I've seen all but two. I haven't seen All Quiet on the Western Front, and I have not seen Triangle of Sadness. And I don't know if I will ever see All Quiet on the Western Front, to be honest. I might just I've only
1: on. I've only seen Avatar. Everything Everywhere all at once and Top Gun Maverick. Really?
0: Yeah. yeah. I think yeah. some of them are good. I don't necessarily agree with all the nominees, but they're I'm be... not
1: going to watch Elvis. I don't do those singing movies. Ever since Bohemian Rhapsody, I just, you know, I don't do it. I think that's Very a bad. good
0: policy. The singing movies are bad.
1: The singing biopics, yeah. especially. And
0: we're only going to not... get more of them. Not the guy not. from The White Lotus is going to play George Michael.
1: Which which guy from White Cameron,
0: is that his name? The one who cheats on his wife.
1: Huh. I I like. He did a good. Uh, he's he's been. I saw that he produced a good documentary. Pepsi, where's my jet? On he's Netflix. he's oh. the
0: guy who died in the first episode of *Downton Abbey*.
1: You have not seen *Downton Abbey*. Good to know that you're watching TV. <laughs> TV rules. Well, I can.
0: I, the one TV show I have been watching the last week and a half. It's Friday Night
1: Lights. Oh, okay. It's good Getting as some, hell. <laughs> get some Jesse Plemons in your life. Good get for you. Get some Jesse
0: Plemons. Get some uh, all kinds of people. Minka Kelly. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not Taylor Lautner. What's that guy's? Taylor Kitch. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah. good. It's very good. Yeah. i surprised good. at how good it is. I recommend that to everybody. It's on Netflix. Um, but. Thank you for listening to the movie brats. Okay. Or sorry, <laughs>
1: Dix picks. This is um, the Dix picks movie brats reaction pod. Uh, uh, the last detail. We will this be back the
0: in detail. February with a Dix pick. Uh, not yet announced, right? What we're doing?
1: Nope. It'll be good. We'll run that. the list.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you for listening. We'll be back. We will be back next month.